As children, we are taught the golden rule, do not talk to strangers. Yet as we grow into adulthood, we realize our lives are filled with strangers. People that are in our lives momentarily, but hold some control over our destiny. Every time we enter a rideshare or taxi, whenever a friend of a friend enters our home, we consign our own safety over to these unknown people with unknown motives. Paul and Lucy, a teen couple in the 1970s, met in Monrovia, California, a diverse city nestled in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. They both lived on the same street and both came from large families. All the siblings from both families were close. Their ages may have varied greatly, but this didn't stop them from all partying together. The group would often drink and smoke at their hangout spot in Azusa Canyon. Others would join them to the secluded area, including Louis Burgess, the boyfriend of Paul's older sister, and Kimberly Miller, a friend of Lucy's sister. Louis, who was around 20 at the time, was not what one would call a gentleman. When his girlfriend brought him around the rest of the group, he would often flirt with the other young women. He would do this blatantly in front of his girlfriend, which caused many fights between the two, while the rest of the group attempted to ignore them. Things got uncomfortable for everyone when Lewis turned his attention to Kimberly, who was only 15 years old. Lewis would say inappropriate things to her, which would set off his girlfriend and cause another fight. Everyone was disgusted by Lewis's actions, but just thought of him as the jerk of the group. Unpleasant and harsh, but mostly harmless. In March of 1974, Kimberly Miller went missing. After hearing this news, Lucy immediately thought something terrible had happened to this poor girl. Everyone in their group, and almost everyone in town, was involved in the search for Kimberly, and on March 25th, a week after she had gone missing, her body was found in Azusa Canyon. She was discovered not far from where the group would hang out. She had been murdered elsewhere, and later dumped in the canyon. Evidence would show she had been brutally strangled while struggling to fight off a sexual assault. The news of the murdered 15-year-old girl shocked the entire town. There are rumors of who could possibly commit this grisly act, but everyone in the group knew it was Lewis Burgess. Paul and Lucy believed Lewis had somehow tricked Kimberly to meet him at the canyon, where he then forced himself on her and maliciously took her life. After the discovery of her body, the rumors of Lewis's involvement became more apparent. Lewis was questioned by local police many times, but due to the lack of incriminating evidence and DNA testing not yet existing, he was set free. With the majority of the town viewing him as a rapist and murderer, Lewis fled Monrovia in fear of what the locals would do to him. The group from Monrovia would never see him in person again. Paul and Lucy would later marry and have three girls of their own. As the girls became young women, Lucy would tell them the story of Kimberly Miller as a sort of warning not to be too trusting of people. One day in 1999, Lucy picked up the newspaper to see Louis Burgess on the cover, wearing prison orange. It was an article about Burgess being transferred from a prison in Missouri back to California in order to stand trial for the rape and murder of Kimberly Miller. DNA evidence that had been stored away for future testing had finally made its way through the system and linked Burgess to the rape and killing of the 15-year-old girl. Lucy was shocked at first, but then couldn't wait to show the rest of the family that justice was finally going to be served. After receiving this story, 
we began our research and were shocked to find that the horrific acts perpetrated by Louis Burgess in 1974 were far from his last. During the trial process for the murder of Kimberly Miller, more DNA evidence would come to light, linking Burgess to another murder. Deborah Hotch, a 22-year-old woman from Rancho Cucamonga, California. She was found in the bathtub of her home on May 26, in 1987. Once again, the victim had been raped and strangled. As part of a plea deal, Burgess admitted his guilt in the brutalization and slaying of young Kimberly Miller and Deborah Hotch. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The death penalty was waived, as it was not in practice in California at the time the two murders were committed. Immediately after those cases were closed, Burgess was transferred back to Missouri, as yet even more DNA evidence had connected him to another murder. This time a Missouri resident, Connie Zaleski. The 31-year-old woman was found at the Big River Access in Ledwood on October 14, in 1990. Her body was discovered by a group of hunters while resting at the River Access. The autopsy showed that she had been sexually assaulted and strangled, just like the other women. She had been dead for less than 12 hours when she was found, but had been seen alive less than 13 hours before while she was visiting with friends. They last saw her walking on Highway 8, west of US 67 in Deloge, Missouri. Burgess was living in Park Hills at the time, not far from Deloge, and was working as a long-haul trucker. During the trial for Zaleski's murder, Burgess would admit his guilt and then address the court with an emotionless and horrifying account of the events of October 14, 1990. Approximately 12.30, or 1, I was coming back from a bar, and I stopped at Deloge gas station. I saw Connie walking up the street, and I pulled over and asked her if she wanted a ride. She said yes. She wanted to go to a bar, and I told her I had some marijuana cigarettes at my house. We could go there first, smoke some. We went there first. We smoked that and drank a beer, and we started kissing and fondling and stuff. And then she wanted to leave. And I tried talking her into staying, but she wanted to go to the bar. And while I was in the kitchen, getting the beer, I picked up a piece of rope. And as we were starting to leave, I grabbed her by the arm, pushed her into the bedroom, and tied her arms behind her back. I forced her to have sex with me when she was tied. She more or less gave into it. And then, I became scared of what was going to happen afterwards. What would she do? I committed rape and I told her I was going to get something to undo the ropes, and I walked into the kitchen, got another piece of rope, walked back in there, and I acted like I was going to untie her. And I put a rope around her neck, and I pulled her back in the bed, and I lied there beside her, pulled the rope tight, and strangled her. And then afterwards, I didn't know what to do. I waited for a half an hour and 45 minutes, and then I loaded her put her body into the car, and took her to Ledwood. Burgess would then drive to the Big River Access and callously dump her body. After his appalling monologue, the daughter of the victim gave her own speech of sorts, directed at Burgess, on behalf of her mother. After she spoke, Burgess was heard uttering a soft, I'm sorry. The daughter heard this and made it known that she did not forgive him for his atrocious acts. Burgess is currently serving his two life sentences in Potosi Correctional Center in Mineral Point, Missouri.
Though Burgess's downfall was brought on by stored DNA evidence, it would seem it dominoed from one arrest. Six years after the Zaleski murder, Burgess was still living in his Park Hills home. He kidnapped a woman who thought Burgess was her friend and attempted to take her to his home, where he would have assaulted and killed her. But the woman was able to break free from him while driving through an industrial park. She then found two police officers that were patrolling the park and was finally safe. Burgess was arrested and charged with attempted first-degree assault. He received 10 years and served four of them when the DNA linking him to the California murders was finally processed. How many other women would have been killed if he wasn't arrested that day in 96? Would the police have been able to locate him when the DNA surfaced if he wasn't already in the system? Could there be other victims of Burgess out there, not yet discovered, waiting to be brought back into the light and given the justice that they deserve? Burgess may never experience life outside of a prison cell, but the families of the three young women whose lives he stole have been shattered like glass. The heartbreak and grief will last like a permanent scar, forever a reminder to those left behind of the pain and tragedy caused by a demon of a man. Could you recognize evil if it were right in front of you? Are we even looking for it? How often are we blissfully ignorant of the real monsters that are a part of our daily lives? Watching and planning, waiting for the right time to release their true dark nature 